breeding can be found in Romans. First reading can be found in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and declare in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of God, the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them. And how can you preach unless they are there sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of the Lord. The second, second reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, and it's just verses 1 to 2, and then 14 and 15, and it's found on page 1002 for church Bibles. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Through the written word and the spoken word, Lord, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Good morning. So this is the last sermon in our series on communication, and wow, what a turnout this morning. Um, over the last few weeks, we've heard from Simon, from Esther, from Domi, on the various ways that we communicate uh, in this modern and digital age that we're all now accustomed to. Um, the technologies like Facebook that facilitate these new rich methods of communication and then some of the core scriptural principles around how we interact with others. So Simon spoke about safe and sanctified and sent. Um, Esther spoke about living lives of integrity, living lives of love and truth. 
And today, we're going to spend a bit of time in Romans, being reminded of the importance of faith as the core of our Christian witness, but also the fundamental truth that in order for people to believe, this, to believe someone must first share the good news with them. So this morning, I want to start by playing a little game. Um, I quite enjoy it. Uh, if I'm going to say some slogans. Um, and I want to see how many of them you actually recognize. Um, shout them out when you know what they are. We'll have a leaderboard at the back or something. Um, if anyone's played the logo board game, it's kind of like that. If you haven't, buy it. It's a really good board game. So let's start. First slogan, just do it. We'll start easy. Uh, I'm loving it. Some I could sing, but I'm not going to sing them. Uh, the best a man can get. Never knowingly undersold. The world's local bank. HBC. The totally tropical taste. Where dreams come true. Disney. Disney World. I'm sure there were some comedy answers, but I didn't quite hear them then. Disney World. Uh, eat fresh. Eat fresh. Subway, yeah. Weird that. Uh, eat, drink, chew. Wrigley's extra. Um, impossible is nothing. Adidas. I have a lot of Adidas stuff. Yeah, Alex is straight on that one. Um, reassuringly expensive. Stella Artois. Yeah. I think they. Don't, I don't think they use that one anymore. But, and um, a Christian presence in every community. Church of England, Christian presence in every community, uh, a home of grace in the heart of the city. Everyone got at least one, good. So, slogans, they're simple, aren't they? They're actually little catchy phrases that generally, they accompany a logo, they accompany a brand, they accompany a product. Um, they encapsulate the appeal of that product or that brand, or perhaps the mission of that brand. So in the case of the Church of England or St. Swithin's, sometimes in the case of John Lewis, it's a promise. Uh, never knownly undersold, and they stick in our minds, and because of that, they sort of reinforce values and ultimately act as little hooks when we're making a purchasing decision. And these slogans, or in a similar sphere, claims or messages on products, be it the most powerful, better for this or that, likely to do this in faster time, whatever it might be, they take quite a lot of time to perfect and to finesse. Um, as many of you know, where I work um, at Dyson, before a new product, goes into production, before we start actually making it, before it's put into its box, shipped to warehouses around the world, supplied to retailers to sell to consumers, it needs a message, it needs some, in some cases, it needs a big campaign to go around it, it needs some marketing heavy work to really convey in the most appropriate way to interested consumers that this is the product for them. So before production, um, we work on what the message is, we, what the claims are that we can, we can make on it, we work with our legal department, who advise us in terms of what we're actually allowed to say. Um, we work with engineers in terms of what we can actually truthfully say. Um, and we, uh, we're always truthful. Um, and we sit with our creative teams. Um, we test with consumers. We try to find out what, what's the most compelling way to say something. And in some cases, that core message on a product can have as big an impact on the success of that product in market than the actual thing itself. 
So sometimes the message is actually as big an impact on how well that product does. And I want you to hold on to that thought in your mind for the next few minutes whilst we look at our passage. So um, if you'd like your Bibles open, it's on page 1137, um, Romans chapter 10. So Romans is a bit different to most of the other letters of Paul. He generally wrote to churches that he himself had established. He was offering guidance. He was offering support. He settled disputes. Um, but the church in Rome was actually there long before Paul arrived on the scene. It's not completely understood how it was formed. But Paul had heard of their faith, and he wanted to write to them to ensure that it was fulfilled as best he could offer. He wanted to make sure their faith was sound, that it was based in truth. And this letter is therefore a total message of Christianity. One writer said, this letter, Romans, contains almost every Christian doctrine in some form. It's a panorama of the marvelous plan of God for the redemption of man, what we might call the master key to all of the scriptures. If you really grasp the book of Romans, it's in total argument that you will find yourself at home in any other part of the scriptures. I don't know about you, but I feel I need to read Romans a lot more. And we can think of Romans, this letter to the church in Rome, in three big chunks. The first eight chapters are all about explaining the gospel. So Paul covers some really big themes. Justified through faith, not works. Expecting suffering. Christ being Lord of all. Christ's love being boundless. Really big themes, big truths that occur again and again in his other writings. And then in chapters 12 to 15, at the end of the letter... Three chapters are all about practical advice on things like love and freedom and duty and attitude. And then this middle section where we find our passage today, chapters 9 to 11, Paul spends some time reflecting on why his own people, the Jews, refused to accept their Messiah. As Paul writes in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9, this is something that causes him great pain. He himself being a Jew and his own people not accepting the Messiah, Chapter 9 can be delved into in so much depth. Whole books are dedicated to it, to the ideas of God's sovereignty and election. And we're not going to go into any of that today. But the main ideas that I want to draw out from that chapter are these. That with all the Old Testament examples that Paul uses, Moses and Pharaoh and Sarah and Jacob, there are three things that he emphasizes. Firstly, that there is a universal need for salvation that spans across boundaries, Jews and Gentiles. That God has the ultimate choice, his divine sovereignty over all, for who to show mercy and which nations to call. And thirdly, that alongside this, there is a human responsibility in accepting or rejecting the gospel. So universal need for salvation, God's sovereignty, and then a human responsibility. And that's kind of where we come to today in chapter 10, that human responsibility. So beginning at verse 9, Paul presents to us two conditions for salvation. Firstly, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And secondly, believe in your heart. So let's look at these both now. If a man called Jesus Lord, if he said Jesus is Lord, he was ranking him up with the emperor and with God. And he was giving him the supreme place in his life. He was pledging him obedience and worship. And today, whilst openly saying Jesus is Lord might have less of a challenge in regards, we probably won't be stoned for it, we wouldn't be seen as committing treason, it's still a challenge to many. I know I struggle saying it. 
And to confess Jesus as Lord comes from a place of self-denial. It requires courage and resolve. It requires content for the ways of the world. And in some cases, it requires putting yourself and your family and everything you hold dear on the line. And it's a big ask. Confessing Jesus is Lord, actually saying those words, importantly, with your mouth, is not some other side request made by Paul. It's mentioned time and again. So Matthew 10, sending out the 12, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father. In 1 John, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. In Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. That was in Luke. So it's said again and again about actually saying these words in front of people. So confessing can be before our friends, it can be before our family, before um, colleagues, strangers, but also confession with our mouths is to God in prayer and praise. So a few chapters later, um, in 15, we see, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first condition um, for salvation is confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And the second condition of salvation and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this passage and anything to do with sharing the gospel is hinged around what we truly believe in our hearts. And this is made no more evident than the fact in verse 10, the order is reversed. Because there must first be a profession of faith in the heart before a confession from our mouths. Otherwise, it's like works. It means nothing. So there must first be a profession of faith in the heart before we say something from our mouths. And the good bit is, with all of that, the hard work has been, has been done. God brought Jesus near to us. He died on the cross that any sinner might be saved at any point in their lives, anywhere. And we have the ability to trust Jesus in our hearts. In Luke, it says, for the kingdom of God is within you. In Jeremiah, it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So we can do it, we can believe, you know, we can have this faith of God in our hearts and then speak these words to people. So Paul presents two conditions for salvation and they're human responsibilities. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, we will with our words openly confess it to others and in so doing, we share the gospel. So why do we share the gospel? Because of the truth that Paul writes at the start of this letter and throughout, that he is an apostle to both Jew and Gentile that, as it says in verse 12 and 13, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Salvation is universal. We can literally tell anyone we like about Jesus. And if they believe, they'll be saved. There's no ifs, no buts. How much harder would it have been if salvation was only for those between the ages of 19 and 23 and they were called Matthew. We'd be walking around screening everyone before we bothered telling them about Jesus. Probably wouldn't be bothering the sermon, to be honest, unless there's anyone else here between 19 and 23 called Matthew, apart from myself. Um, so we share the gospel because it's a command, but we should also share it because it's good for us. It builds us up. We grow as Christians ourselves. It's like the... Um, it's like the appendix lines on presentations that we do. 
We have them just in case we need to go there, in case we need to go deeper or the discussion goes in some tangent. And it's just like that with sharing the gospel. It promotes other conversations. We can go deeper and we can go into other areas. And that can only be a good thing for our spiritual lives. But the other reason we share the gospel, well, the big verses for today, 14 and 15, it's like poetry. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We share the gospel because it opens up the possibility of someone coming to call on Christ. So we share the gospel to bring people to Christ. So what does all that mean for us? I might get some funny looks now, more funny looks, um, but bear with me. What if I said that sharing the gospel is fundamentally marketing, isn't it? It's just marketing. I read a phrase this week that I find quite interesting. The church is in the business of doing God's business. I quite like that. The church is in the business of doing God's business. And this word marketing can throw up a whole host of different associations. On one hand, marketing has come to be accepted by society as fundamental, intrinsic in promoting a product for a profit. It's a business term. Marketing, classically, is focused on segmenting consumers into particular groups. And if we apply this to a church, this can sound quite a scary concept. As we heard earlier, the gospel is universal for all, and having a target audience could lead to certain groups who aren't in that pool missing out. There are also passages like Matthew 16 in which we hear Jesus say, I will build my church. I will build my church. So we sort of assume church growth will just happen anyway, won't it? Do we really need to force messages out there with slick campaigns and big budgets and all that type of stuff? Well, on the other hand, it's important to remember that we deliver the message. We are the evangelists. Literally, we deliver the good news, and we do this with the Holy Spirit acting within us. And the purpose of marketing, whether it be a great product or cause or the greatest gift on this earth, its aim is to share it with people, to make people aware and to encourage a response and a commitment. And that commitment in business is a commitment to buy, generally, but in the case of our faith, it's ultimately a commitment to follow Christ. And for some, there are many steps on that journey, and perhaps the commitment is just to explore the journey ahead. I want it to dwell a bit within us, this idea of marketing the gospel. And we're going to look at a few slides now. If I can have that slide, Esther. On the screen, sorry, it's really quite small, actually. On the screen is an ad for a new vacuum cleaner from the 1920s. Of course, we were going to talk about vacuums today. Um, people, people would buy this machine to keep their floor and home clean. That's no different to today. The core proposition of a vacuum cleaner hasn't changed since they were first invented. But some of the wording is amazing. I'm going to read you a few lines. Old-fashioned old -fashioned cleaning methods are dangerous, in capitals. Then it goes on to say, hospitals can relate to thousands of stories of suffering women injured by their own folly in clinging to old-fashioned methods. So we see the lady sweeping dust all over the floor. Um, and not least affected by this reckless activity is her daughter and teddy bear, 
tugs at your heartstrings. It then goes on to say, Electrolux brings you easy, pleasant, satisfactory house cleaning, inexpensively saves hours of useless and physical injurious drudgery, makes ample leisure for your pleasures. I'm not sure what half of that means. How well would that advert do in today's world? The price is nice. <laughs> Sold. Um, we might, yeah, the price. Electrolux as well. Uh, we might see it as a bit sexist, perhaps. Uh, the Advertising Standards Authority that we have to work with quite a lot of work, um, they'd probably require us to evidence how we can justify happier home. Um, probably wouldn't end up being printed, actually, in any way. The point I want to make is this, that whilst the need hasn't changed, it's as true today as it was then that people want clean floors. How we communicate the solution has changed significantly. It's changed because of society's views. It's changed because of the makeup of homes. It's changed because of roles in the family have switched around. To meet people's needs today, we communicate with them in a way which they can understand, in a way which makes sense to them at a time and a place that's relevant to them. And this is the same for the gospel. A senior person at Facebook um, in the US last year told Vogue magazine, for those of you that read it, I'm an avid reader, um, that last year's presidential election received the most attention of anything on Facebook in America last year. But other topics, such as the refugee crisis, ISIS, marriage equality, Black Lives Matter, all topics with religious angles, they were close behind. So there are opportunities where we can share Christ with others. The core need for Christ in this world hasn't changed. It's as true today as it was when Paul was writing. Now, once we understand what our message is, what the message is and that core need, the next step is to identify the best place to communicate it. And I want to put out three today. For those who care about American sports, tonight is the Super Bowl. I'm sure everyone's going to stay up to watch it. I literally, I think it starts at just before midnight or something. Maybe it's earlier. Um, in 2014, 167 million Americans watched the Super Bowl. And a 30-second ad in tonight's Super Bowl, how much do you think that costs, a 30-second ad? How much? $5 million for a 30-second ad. $5 million for a 30-second TV ad. It's expensive because TV can bring huge numbers of people to hear your message. Really great for awareness and visibility. But it's not always the best for giving people all the information. It's not a great sort of call to action. It looks nice and they'll sort of enjoy it for 30 seconds and maybe sort of forget about it. So now TV's changed slightly because we don't have all these big families sat around watching TV together on a Saturday night, so viewing figures all over the place. So now we have TV that has constant shopping channels, and these are dedicated hour-long programs, really, really great for explaining a product in a non-threatening way in your home. And then we have social media playing its part. Companies like Facebook and Instagram are valued at huge sums because of the access they provide to people. Facebook, they don't charge to sign up to their website. They make their money and their valuation from businesses, from the data they have, because businesses are then able to go to them 
and be much better targeted in who sees their ads. We can segment our consumers. We can tailor messages to what will resonate most with that person in that place at that time. A classic example is the booming group of consumers called shopternals. Does anyone know what a shopternal is? I'm married to a shopternal. A shopternal, these are new mothers who are kept awake by their babies and they do a lot of shopping between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. That is a growing consumer group, and that's a, it feels really niche, doesn't it? But effectively, I can sell my product to that particular group of people if I really want to. Now, it's not to say that all these means, TV, sort of hour-long TV programs and social media and Facebook and everything else, all set up for business primarily. I'm not saying they're all suitable for our church and us as individuals, but it does raise the question in our own lives, in our, the lives of our church, how are we communicating and how are we currently sharing the gospel? Are we thinking really broad TV style, speak to many but not in particular depth? Or perhaps like shopping channels, we have really great conversations with people, but we do it in a, a comfortable way that doesn't really want to offend. Or lastly, are we targeting who we speak to, are really picking out particular segments and calling and then forgetting about all the other people around them? The last point I wanted to pick up on was this, that we often think of marketing as a very visual concept, big budget ads, packaging, outdoor signage. I'm sure you can think of uh, many different examples, but sharing the gospel really should be no different. We serve a creative God. Beauty comes from him, and he communicates visually through his creation. When we create all these different assets to, to put into retail and whatever else, all these different visual elements of communicating our brand and our message, we hope they capture attention. It's the first stage of bringing anyone from being a shopper through to actually buying your product, being an owner. It's that first stage. And it was the same in the Bible. You know, at the time, Time and time again, Moses and the burning bush, Paul on the road to Damascus, the transfiguration, God using his creation in a really visual way to capture attention. And when we share the gospel with others, may we think visually, not veiling our message, like Damien mentioned a few weeks ago, like Moses coming down the mountain, but showing God in all his glory, not just words, not just in the way we live our lives, but in other ways, other visual ways that we can show people. And as we're coming up to Lent this week, I want to challenge us to do three things over the next few weeks. Three E's to remember this time. Firstly, to embrace. To embrace this dynamic and ever-changing world in which we live. To be open to sharing the gospel when new opportunities arise. To adapt our ways of communicating to meet the people where they are. Secondly, to evaluate. To evaluate how we're currently sharing the gospel. Who are we talking to? How are we talking to them? And are we doing it in the right way? And then thirdly, to engage, to think about capturing attention. Christ will build his church, but let's strive to bring people to the door. Let's pray. Lord, your word is more than a passage on a Sunday morning to us. As we read today, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Lord, equip us to share the gospel. Let it flow through our every interaction, every conversation, heartfelt word and thought. In your name we pray. Amen.